Hey there, what's going on? My name is Jason Bay. I'm the host of Blissful Prospecting. You can call me JBay for short. And this podcast is for sales teams and sales reps who love landing big meetings with prospects, but hate it when they go to customize an email and they can't find anything to write about the person because they don't have a LinkedIn profile. So if that's ever happened to you before, you're in the right place. Let's get to the interview. So one of the things that really doesn't get talked about at all is such an important piece of especially prospecting is your ability to like will yourself to do the activity, you know, on a daily basis. It's sort of like working out, right? Like what makes a successful you know diet or workout plan is really just the consistency around doing it. And if you apply the 80-20 rule, it's just doing the right things that you should be doing 80 plus percent of the time. That's usually going to get you the results that you want. And if we're looking at working out or eating healthy, it's going to give you long-term health benefits. Where we start to run into problems, no matter how good the diet or workout plan is, is if we're not consistent with it, right? And the same thing happens in sales with prospecting. It's a lot like working out. And with prospecting, it's not usually about the fancy videos or sending audio messages on LinkedIn. It's just about the ability to just do prospecting, to send the emails that you need to send, make the phone calls that you need to make, and do that every single day, day in, day out. And before you know it, you start to build a pretty fat pipeline if you're consistent with that. And this is the piece that doesn't really get talked about at all. A lot of people talk about IQ when hiring salespeople or how smart someone is, right? And their ability to learn quickly or whatever it might be. A lot of people talk about EQ right now, your people skills, essentially. Empathy is a piece of that, but your ability to just kind of, you know, talk to the prospect as a person and put yourself in their shoes. But what people are not talking about right now is a concept called BQ. So that's B as in boy, BQ, behavioral quotient. And our guest today, Mary, her first year at Paychex, so I think this was like maybe 10 years ago or so when she first got started in sales, she was the top rep and she like almost quintupled, I guess, 5X'd her quota <laughs> and like crushed the previous record by, I think, about three times. And when I saw her resume, I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's really, you know, sort of interesting. And the reason why I thought it was interesting is like, what compels someone to like really crush a company record like that? And what she really talks about in the work that she does with companies, so she does training and consulting as well in the sales space, is really this like mindset behind the action and like doing the daily thing, like your behavior, your daily behaviors. And like I said, it's not something I, I hear really talked about a lot. So we're going to dig into that and how it pertains to prospecting. We're going to talk about her journey and really the mindset behind being a top performing rep. So you're really going to enjoy this one. And before we get to the interview, you know, we're talking about behavior and one of the keys to behavioral change, which I think is key with prospecting, like the key to prospecting, if I had to really distill it down to like one thing is your ability to like create good habits and replace bad ones. And it comes down to like the micro does the first thing that come out of your mouth when you start talking about to the prospect is, is it what you do or is it something about them? You know, that's a very basic habit that if you make a point to talk about them first instead of about yourself, those interactions are usually going to go a lot better. And prospecting is just a culmination of a bunch of tiny habits around that. And one of the keys to either replacing a habit or creating a new habit is being able to identify the bad habits and having something notify you of when you might be doing something bad. No different than if you're driving in a car and you have a speedometer telling you when you might be speeding, right? So one of the tools that I rely on to notify me during a sales call, if I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing, like talking too long, is called Wingman. And it's crazy because it actually, you know, I was doing a sales call. So I started using this tool about a month ago and I was doing a sales call and it actually reminded me that, you know, when I was showing this prospect a specific part of our training program, I said, does that make sense? That's kind of one of those no-no phrases <laughs> in sales, especially if you're demoing something. But not having a tool that like notifies you when you say something like that makes it really hard to replace that habit. 
And that's what I've been using Wingman for. It's been awesome. It notifies me of when I'm saying bad things. It allows me to process recordings for the companies that I work with where I don't have to listen to a 45 minute recording all at once. It'll actually pick out sections so that I can pinpoint certain things that I want to coach them around so that I can scale my coaching. So if you're a manager, this is a really great way to scale the coaching with your team. So check it out. It's at blissfulprospecting.com slash wingman. That'll take you straight to the site. And I would highly recommend checking out either as an individual rep, if you're wanting some solutions like this and your company's not paying for it, or if you're a manager or a sales leader and you want to integrate some really smart recording software to help you coach around habits with your team. So check it out, blissfulprospecting.com slash wingman. Let's get to the interview today. So I'm super excited to have you on because you're like one of those like freaks of nature, I feel like in sales that just like looks at your quote and you're like, you know what, like, I'm going to like do five times that amount. <laughs> and like when I've listened to you on podcasts, I listened to you on John Barrow's podcast and just looking at your LinkedIn, I thought that'd be kind of a good place to start was like, how did you get into sales? And mm -hmm. the second part to that question would be like, what do you remember about the very first sale that you made? Yeah, that's a, such a kind term, freak of nature. I'll take it all day long. <laughs> I feel like people feel more comfortable calling me that after looking at my sales track record. But sales for me was the accidental profession like it is for millions of salespeople. Yep. And I didn't have a college degree. I didn't have professional experience. I landed a job through a staffing agency with a Fortune 1000 payroll and HR company. And I went on as an administrative assistant, 13 bucks an hour, and just cut my teeth in the whole professional world, not even just sales. But my role was to support the number one sales team in the country. It was a mid-market B2B uh, SaaS and service sale. The sales manager had been there about 15 or 16 years, tremendous track record, amazing human being. I studied for two years. I was 22 years old. I said, you know, I wanna go into sales. I wanna do this. And I just did what I needed to do to figure it out enough to where they would have enough confidence to put me in the role. So when they put me in the role at age 24, so I'd never sold anything, but I had two years at least working for the company. So I had a clue, we'll call it. Yeah. And I did some sales training classes like through Dale Carnegie. And I loved Brian Tracy's Psychology of Selling. I listened to that 11 cassette tape series <laughs> for about, I don't know, 18 months on repeat, which I thought was fantastic. Just teaching me the more that foundational, what is sales and when I stepped into the role, they gave me a $150,000 quota. And so here's how I've seen everything in my life. I'm the youngest of four kids. I didn't have the best childhood and upbringing. If for me, it was a lot of fighting for survival and figuring out things at the highest level possible so that I could just make it through another day. I've always been so competitive and I started working when I was 15, like the day I turned 15, because my parents would have had me working at 14, but you need like a worker's permit and I didn't get that. Yeah. So they waited until I was 15. I've been fully supporting myself since I turned 16. And so I had this Dang. like slingshot forward. So when I got that $150,000 quota, I've never done anything mediocre in my life. I just do it to my fullest ability. I just grew up so competitive and it was all about survival and being the best. So 150,000, I was like, well, what did the gal do in the, who's in the role right now? What did the number one rep do? And she had done 300,000. So in my mind, I was like, you gave me a baby quota. I said, I'm not going to come out after my first year and be like, yay, I did the minimum. That was really exciting. I'm like, I can't be proud of myself for that. And a sales manager who gave me an opportunity, he didn't have to do that. I didn't have experience. I still didn't have a college degree. I was so young compared to the other reps on the team. And he didn't have to believe in me. He didn't have to give me the spot. And so people gave him a hard time. And they said that it was the worst decision in his 16-year career to put me in sales. There was no way a 24-year-old like me, you could put me in front of a CEO. So there was a lot of adversity. I was like, really? Yeah. Watch me. So immediately I said, my quota might be 150 but I want to do that in six months. I want to hit a minimum of 300,000. So I told myself out of the gate, I just wanted to be what the best person had done previously. And so that's what I used as the number to like back into to figure out what I would need to do. But then when I started excelling 
ahead of that number. So month one, I think I threw up like 30,000 in month one. I was like, well, shoot, I'm already at a run rate of 360. What if I did 40,000 or 50,000 in the next month? And so I started to think like, how quickly can I accelerate? I ended up doing 758,000 in my first year because I just allowed myself to hit the number that showed what I was actually capable of. And I had so much fueling me to just crush everyone and prove them all wrong. Whew, where did we get started? I'm fired up. Okay, so I want to talk to you about this potential is something that I think about a lot. And I was actually talking to my sister. So she's 22 years old, Courtney. And she's like just graduated college, right? And she's trying to get into marketing in the middle of COVID. She graduated, you know what I mean? And like trying to get into marketing and mm -hmm. and she's kind of you know, having some challenges, you know, finding a good position, a good company, that sort of stuff. And the topic got brought up and I just asked like, do you ever think about what is your potential? And like, are you living your potential? Like that kind of thing. And we just had a really interesting conversation. I'm curious if you can remember at that time, how did you look at your potential? Have you always kind of looked at it like I'm capable of so much more and like, why not like do that kind of thing? And it was like kind of straightforward for you. Or did you have to really kind of think about like, or did you have to think about it much at all? I guess, like, how do you sort of internalize, like, am I living up to my potential? That has changed in me as I've, as I've grown up through the years. Yeah. The first version of that was out of fear of, yeah. of not being successful. So as a child, and, and hopefully this people who are listening to this, like this means something to you. We were all raised differently mm -hmm. and how we were raised shapes how we are as adults and it's our inner self. It's our framework. It's how we our frame of reference, it's how we digest information, it's how we make decisions, it's how we view ourselves, it's how we view others, it's everything. So for me, I was raised that I was never good enough. And the only way to get my parents' attention was by overachieving. Hmm. So it was performance-based love is how I grew up. And I really could only get their attention in a good way by going way above and beyond and doing something remarkable. And so for my childhood, it was all about outperformance and I became very good at doing that. So I was a straight A student. I, my parents owned a performing arts school. I trained in all forms of, of classical dance as well as musical theater and piano and voice and acting. And I had to prove to them that I was something. And so I overachieved. Well, then I got a glimmer of maybe they liked me for a second, which was a really great feeling in between the other million times when I was made to feel as a horrible person. So as I look at when I said yes to this role at 22, I had this track record of if I had that cliche, like if you put your mind to it, you can achieve anything. <laughs> but for me, it was just out of, I never had a plan B because if I didn't succeed, it was abuse and it was terrible situations and so much just mental and emotional abuse coming my direction. And nobody wants that. Yeah. So for me, it's like, I never had a plan B. So at 22, when somebody says, this is your new profession. And then six months into the role, I'm like, I want to do this for a living. And somebody said they thought I could do it. I latched onto that glimmer of hope because there was somebody who was believing in me and very few people have believed in me in my life. So when my manager was like, I think you could actually be really successful in this. I latched on and said, yes. And, you know, I just grabbed his hand and was along for the ride. The mentorship was incredible. Mm -hmm. And so you talk about motivation or was I going to win? Somebody said they thought I could do something. They believed in me. That's all the motivation I needed. And so I said, yes. And there was no plan B. I never once thought, what if I fail? It was only all of my energy and attention was directed towards how do I succeed? Interesting. How many siblings did you have? Three. Three siblings. Are you the oldest? Are you somewhere in the middle? Youngest? No, I'm the youngest. Youngest. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what you said. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing that, by the way, that's, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's enough of that uh, and it's hard to do, <laughs> but I was the oldest of four and I kind of didn't have like the same situation you had. It was almost like this, cause I was, you know, valedictorian did really well in sports. And I felt this pressure as an older sibling where I had to like perform because my parents would talk about me mm -hmm. to my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, the rest of the family. And then I felt like I had to set this example for my younger siblings which was like kind of, kind of weird. So it was like a lot of extrinsic motivation, actually, like at that time, which correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like at that time for you, it was, it was fairly like there was kind of these outside motivators for you that really helped push you internally. Am I reading that right? Or 
Yeah. So for me, it, it was definitely a combination of extrinsic and intrinsic. The okay. external reward in that instance was that somebody believed in me and cared about me, which was yeah. a huge hole in my life. And that was really addictive to have that. Mm -hmm. The internal was the intrinsic motivation was I finally felt like I had a profession that aligned with my talents and I was set up for success. So in the intrinsic motivation, it was self-competition. It was challenging myself to do better than I had, but actually recognition is, even though it's coming from an external source, is an intrinsic motivator. So recognition, when we talk about extrinsic, we're really talking about like monetary reward or yep. physical things like, hey, you know, you could buy a house, a car, whatnot. But when you look at what is happening internally for me, yes, like I love your story because it's real. That's why I was saying, I hope this meant some something to someone who's listening. And mm -hmm. even though our childhoods were different, it's super similar. You had pressure to perform and some of that was created by your environment. Others was you made that up yourself and said that was important to you. Yeah, And I did too. It's just the framework of what we dealt with when we grew up. And everybody has that story of how it shapes them towards how they go after their goals in life. So honestly, like salespeople who have it super easy when they grow up, and everything is a very calm environment and you don't have those pressures or you're not an athlete, you don't compete or you don't have that sibling rivalry or you're not fighting for your parents' attention or you're not learning how to overcome adversity as a child, whether it's poverty or abuse or whatever it is. Like, I'm just being real right now. If your childhood was super easy, like sales is not easy, FYI. And sales takes a lot of rejection and it takes a lot of hard work and it takes a huge amount of get up and go. It takes entering into the battlefield every single day. And then like, if you never did that growing up, and then you want to say yes to that in a career, like you don't even have that muscle in your body. And so you wonder why you don't hit those levels of peak performance in sales. It's, it's like you're, you have the DNA of a salesperson or you don't. Yeah. Also what I'm getting from our conversation, correct me if I'm wrong here too, is like this, there's kind of this like nature versus nurture you know, kind of aspect to the way that we we grow up. And are you sort of of the belief that a lot of like your environment and like your surroundings shapes for the most part who you are? Obviously, there's some genetic, you know, kind of things. But do you feel like that's mostly created by your environment? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I can trace back like, <laughs> thankfully, I've had some really great coaches and mentors mm -hmm. and people in my life that just helped me learn who I am. And They've helped me see that I can trace back all of my qualities on who I am today. I can trace it back to what happened to me as a child that developed that perspective that I have. And yeah. I'm okay with it. I love who I am. I'm thankful for who I am. And I have flaws. I'm nowhere near perfect. I've done really stupid things in my life. And, you know, by the grace of God, I'm here and I'm, I'm living out my purpose and I'm loving it all. But everybody's story and like how you were raised and how you were shaped, absolutely it indicates who you're going to be as an adult. I 100% believe yeah. that. Yeah, because it's the old, like people say there's natural born salespeople. I'm like, eh, I don't really think there's natural born salespeople. There's people that grew up in an environment where they were raised where like yours, it sounds like, and similar to kind of mine. I never thought that I would get into sales, but it was kind of like a natural way to just leverage my innate strengths. Yes. Just from the environment. So this is a good segue, I think, into BQ. Mm-hmm. So can you just, for people that don't know what BQ is, like, what is BQ? We hear IQ, we hear EQ, mm -hmm. all this other stuff. What is BQ and how did you kind of come up with this concept? Yeah, BQ is the behavioral quotient. It's all about the get up and go. It's the conscious decision to put in the extra effort, the work that you need to do to succeed. So hear me out on this. I'll tell you what BQ, how it works in a second, but understand this concept. A high-performing salesperson has to have IQ, EQ, and BQ because IQ, I think the best salespeople, they're wicked smart. They understand their product and service inside and out. They can demo it better than their sales engineer. They can implement it better than their implementation team. They know every single nuance and piece of it. And what I love about that is the trust that you gain with the prospect in the sales conversation because you know the answer to every question that they ask and your credibility goes through the roof because you don't sit there and overpromise, underdeliver. You don't sit there and shake your head up and down yeah, the whole time and they don't believe you. Or you don't say, you know, I'm not really sure that's a great question. Let me go and find that out. Not a terrible answer, but please try to eliminate that. So when you have really strong IQ, you understand the competition, you understand the marketplace, 
You totally get the pains and problems that you solve of that buyer. And you're just wicked smart in how you articulate and you attack the conversation and so much trust and credibility is built. People buy from really intelligent and smart salespeople. Then there's the EQ component, meaning that you can emotionally connect with your buyer because buyers don't buy logically. They buy emotionally and they justify logically. And if you haven't created the emotional connection, that is a problem as a salesperson. So being high on EQ and being a great human being, being able to shift and pivot and read people's emotions to keep your emotions in check, not get triggered in the sales conversation, and to be able to be masterful in how you pivot and you guide a conversation based on their feelings, how they are interpreting data, listening to their tone and their voice, their word choice, if they're speeding up or slowing down, if you're able to see them in person or over a video, that you can see how they're physically reacting and adjust and pivot. EQ is brilliant in that. It's also with great EQ, you're modifying your process. So even if in your step in the cadence, the step in the cadence is to send a breakup email and you're like, but I know this person and this type of person won't receive that well. So you modify it, you adjust it, even though your sales manager's like, follow this cadence, you know, set it to go. And you're like, mm, I got to just phrase this a little bit differently so I don't kill my relationship. So your EQ's off the charts, but none of that matters if you don't have BQ because I don't care if you're wicked smart and you're an amazing salesperson and emotionally connected with your buyers. The fact of the matter is you have to show up every day and you have to execute at the highest level if you want to achieve performance. BQ is results. So hear me out. I've been wicked smart because I take it upon myself to learn my product and service inside and out. And I know that that helped me as a salesperson. I'm emotionally connected with my buyers. So many clients that I won through my eight-year B2B mid-market SaaS sales career are my friends today. That's how emotionally connected I was with my prospects to my clients, but I had variance in my performance. I had quarters that were down. I had years that were down. And the one thing that was the difference, I didn't become less smart. I didn't become less emotionally connected. I did less work and I didn't have my foot on the gas. And I didn't work the extra hour that day. I didn't pick up the phone and do the extra dial. And on those days I didn't do those, then those were the seeds I chose not to plant for the day. And so then my harvest did not bear that fruit. When you think about BQ, think about it as a wheel. What you think, your mental mindset triggers your emotional state. And that emotional state, depending on how you're showing up as a person, how you're feeling, is going to dictate your actions and those actions yield results. And so when you think about seed planting, the concept of seed planting, if your thoughts, words, and actions were seeds and you put them in the ground, what harvest will you get? If you are negative, if you're down on yourself, if you're discouraged, if you're frustrated, if you're mad that you're company is behind the competition on the technology roadmap that they, you think they're overpriced, you're losing because of price. If you think your sales manager is a jerk, if whatever, Zoom gloom got you down, you're extroverted and you can't be around people and you're super sad. And like, if all this stuff is weighing you down, those are the thoughts and words and actions you're putting in the ground. You're going to have a really bad harvest in a couple of months. But if your thoughts, words, and actions follow this BQ wheel of high performance, where you're taking the information that enters your mind, you're separating it out, facts from stories, you're bringing in an optimistic, emotional state where you're encouraged, you're passionate, you're enthusiastic, you're really up for the challenge of sales and solving your prospects problems, your actions are going to be at a much higher level and the harvest, your results, you will be yielding amazing fruit from the seeds that you're planting in that. You just got me fired up again, dude. I'm just like, I want to go prospect right now. <laughs> I want to prospect right now. Can we just start calling people? <laughs> we start cold calling people. Hey, hope you're enjoying the interview with Mary. One of the things that we've been talking around a lot around behavior change is like creating repeatability around what works. And I'm not sure if this has ever happened to you, but either as a rep or when coaching people is, you know, we call it hitting the panic button during a sales call, right? The prospect asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, and you kind of scramble around through your script or your talking points or whatever it might be. One of the tools that I've been using to coach reps around this is called Wingman. And it'll actually, cue cards will pop up when a customer talks about a specific objection. And it'll bring up the talking points in bullet point form. So it's not distracting, but it'll make sure that you're talking about the right thing. It's something, you know, I've been selling for 12 years now. And it's something that I use during sales calls and it works really well. 
but check it out at blissfulprospecting.com slash wingman. Let's get back to the interview with Mary. Is it fair to say with uh, BQ, this is kind of like your ability to manage yourself? Yes. Yeah. So let's go through, I want to break down this process because I think there's a couple factors at play right now, especially with like the working environment being the way that it is. I was used to, you know, people say being in the bullpen, kind of a weird analogy, I think, but like we're used to being in on a sales floor with other folks. Mm -hmm. Now we're working from home. We don't sort of have that energy to rub off on other people. We're, so we're maybe doing cold outreach. We're doing it by ourselves and it's a grind. I mean, like doing cold outreach is like, I equate it to exercise. You know, I don't really enjoy exercising, but I know that I need to do it. And it's just like something that I need to do and get out of the way and like, yeah, I'm not negative about it, but it's like, I'd be lying to you if I said I enjoyed doing it, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's really relevant to just the working environment right now. So you said, you know, our thoughts trigger our emotional state that dictates our actions and the results. Let's start with the thoughts. Yeah. So what's your take on like positive mindset? Is that something we control? Is it a good thing to be positive? You know, and how does that relate to like understanding our emotions and potentially pushing down, you know, emotions when we shouldn't? Like what's your take on like the thoughts part of this and like positive mindset? Is that what it is? Or like, what should we be thinking about? Yeah, it's everything. It all starts here. Hmm. Have you ever had a friend who finds something wrong with everything. It's so annoying. I, I don't have very many of those friends anymore. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, hopefully, hopefully they're not in your circle or you've helped coach them to realize there's such a downer. So I had a friend once where every sentence was negative. So you hear the phrase glass half empty, glass half full. So we could see the exact same thing. And there was always something wrong with everything. And after every conversation, I was so drained and I started to feel down on myself. And it's like, wait, I was the one who was positive in the conversation, but there's such like attitudes are contagious. Is yours worth catching? Ooh. I love asking that. So I had a friend whose attitude was very contagious and it was not worth catching and I hated it. I would always feel awful after hanging out with her. And I'm like, oh, you know, I just can't stand the negativity. You have to check yourself. The person you talk to the most during the day is yourself. And the thoughts that you create start off of a piece of information entering your mind. So let me just break this down. If I held up a bag of a potato chips right now, I'll just hold up a bag of potato chips. Somebody may look at the potato chips. So a piece of information enters their mind. There's two people, a bag of potato chips is being held up. One person might say, yes, I'm so hungry. I love chips. It's my favorite flavor. Give it to me. Can't wait to eat it. Oh, this is amazing. Now I won't be hungry. Oh, this is perfect because I'm about to go make a bunch of calls and like whatever. This is great. Another person could look at that bag of potato chips and say, are you kidding me? That's disgusting. I would never eat that. Do you know how much saturated fat is in there? That is so bad for you. I have been on a healthy diet for the last year and I would never touch that. I can't even believe, like it's 2020. Does anyone even eat chips anymore? Like those should be banned by the FDA. That's terrible. How gross. You know what? You're like a horrible person to even have chips in front of me right now. Like, why would you do that to me? That's gross. And then they get discouraged and frustrated and they go off into this whole tangent. So why does that happen? That's a silly example that I'm hoping people can relate to. Any piece of information that enters your life, human beings tell a story about it. And you tell that story to yourself. And the power in this, because you, you asked me about positive mindset, the power in this is that you intercept the story that you're telling yourself. It's about being conscious and figuring out how you are able to acknowledge what's happening inside of you, intercept it, and actually change the story. And it is one of the most powerful things that somebody could do. And we all have the power inside of us. First step is awareness. You just learned. So step one, you, you have to start listening to your thoughts. And the coolest thing ever is that if you intercept the thought while you're telling yourself the story before you have an emotional reaction, you can just change the story. If you allow it to trigger an emotional reaction and that's a negative emotional reaction, the longer you let it go, the harder it is to change it. So if you have a sales manager that drives you bonkers, one, I just encourage you, if you have anyone in your life that drives you bonkers, I just want you to ask the question, do you think that they actually woke up that day and said, my, my number one goal today is to ruin this person's life? The answer is probably not. So give them the benefit of a doubt. Give them some grace. 
you've heard the saying, you never know what battle someone else is fighting or what's going on in their life or their lens and how they see things. Just because they are that way, it doesn't mean you have to be that way. You can stop. You can stop at the moment before you get triggered emotionally by that person. So if your sales manager tells you something Right then, when the piece of information comes in, change the story in your head and find a way to shift it to a positive mindset. It's going to feel weird and corny at first. It may feel a little kumbaya, like you're just trying to you know, turn the positive into everything and find the silver lining. But honestly, that's what you're doing. And your quality of life will increase immediately. And when you change the story, if it's real negative, when it first happens, just reverse it. So if you're like, well, what if I fail? Well, what if this goes wrong? Well, what if this doesn't happen? I just want you to change the story to, but what if it does? But what if it does work? So even though this happens, what if this does have a great outcome? What if I open my mind to the possibility that this could actually work out or that this is a good thing? Or you just have to change the story. Immediately upon changing the story, your emotional state is going to align to that. And you're immediately going to have this feeling of peace and joy and there's going to be a moment of optimism and that emotional state is what will fuel those actions because then you're actually excited you're optimistic and you're inclined to do something better yeah it's kind of like the growth versus fixed mindset i think is like growth-minded people believe that they actually do control their feelings and their thoughts and like all this other stuff right and that sounds like a really big part of it you have to believe that you can actually control like your thoughts, yes. <laughs> you know, we, we could talk about that for an hour. So it sounds like there's that kind of growth versus fixed mindset. It's like, Hey, we can control this stuff. One of the things that I'm curious though, with positive mindset, I do find, and I'm curious what you see that some people kind of take it too far sometimes. And like, if something bad happens, you know, someone rejects them, maybe not even in a sales context. Let's say that you're single and you're dating someone you thought that you really liked. And then they say, they don't want to date you anymore. Like I find sometimes people don't take just a moment to acknowledge like, hey, this kind of sucks and like feeling rejected doesn't feel good. And like, how am I feeling? Like just just a, a minute to kind of process your feelings real quick. But, you know, what's the good part about this? Like, what do you feel about that middle kind of step with like just kind of acknowledging like, hey, if this is something that's frustrating or makes you feel bad or whatever it is, like that's normal. Like you're a human for feeling that taking that pause and then moving forward. What are your thoughts on that? Or is it just kind of like a, you flip it immediately kind of thing? I'll try not to make this a 20 minute answer, but that's real. I think there's a difference between little things that happen in life that we allow us to weigh us down and have negative consequences as a result, which was really what I was focusing on in the last answer. But there are things that happen from time to time that require a certain amount of attention and processing emotions around it. And that is to be human. However, when you start practicing this controlling of your thoughts and reversing of negative stories and entering into a positive mindset, you're really training up a new muscle yeah. inside of you. And something that has happened inside of me, because I had a wretched, terrible childhood and there were a lot of scars from it. And I made a decision that it wasn't going to be baggage for me. And I changed the story in my head because for years I played victim. And that's ridiculous because that doesn't change the past. I entered into a season of forgiveness, of processing everything that happened and truly forgiving my parents to get to a point where I could even express an emotion of love. Now, hear me, they're not in my life anymore. Not one person in my family is in my life anymore. They haven't been for a very long time. And I grieved that and I moved on from it, but I was able to get myself to a place of gratitude and being thankful for what I went through. And I know that's very hard for people to understand, but it is the most freeing thing that I could have ever done for myself. And it takes time. But when, as a human being, you're able to realize that there's so much power in shifting how you emote and react and choosing to respond, when bad things happen to me now, my bounce back factor is unbelievable because I'm able to have gratitude and find thanks and to find joy in even the worst of circumstances. I'm not perfect. Things get me down. But because I've practiced this for so long, when bad things happen, I find a way to be thankful that they're another piece of my journey and they're going to help shape me and turn me into even more of a remarkable person. Take 2020 as an example. It was very difficult for me. 
we, our business was hit significantly. Yeah. My entire profession was turned upside down and I didn't know what that meant for me, my employees, my family. I also had self-reflection that was devastating to me. I had sacrificed being a wife and a mom to grow a company. I missed out on two years of my son's very early life because I had dreams of being an entrepreneur. I scaled a company quickly. We we're very successful in the pandemic shutdown. We lost 60% revenue in three days. Yeah. I sat on the floor with my husband and my son and I was crying hysterically looking at them. And I had remorse to think that I sacrificed them for my business, something that came down in three days. When I had my husband and my son that I had practically ignored for two years and convinced myself through that I was still being a good mom, which was a lie and a good wife. And I realized in that moment that I had a decision to make and I needed to pick myself up off the ground. I apologized. I hugged them and I kissed them. And I went to my company and my team members. I said, we're going to do things a little bit different around here. And I started to make a series of decisions that would honor all of us with our work-life balance and also getting better on our ICP with our client and how we were going to rebuild. But I went into action and that's BQ. I could have sat there like a lot of people did and maybe still are seven months into this pandemic and still crying on the floor like I was and not sure how to get their life back together and find the silver lining and work through it. Yes, I cried. Yes, I had about a week that was really difficult, but I was committed to being better than I was before and went through the series of steps and we are stronger, we are better. I am 10 times the woman that I was in 2019 and everyone's benefiting from it. So as a human being, should you process emotion? Absolutely. But you need to give yourself encouragement that you need to get through it so that you can be better as a result of it and just make it part of your journey. I love that. That's so awesome. Like what I'm getting from our conversation is like, you're so intentional about the way that you think about things. You look at BQ as a skill, therefore it is like a skills are just habits, mm -hmm. right? Like the habit part of it is something that you've practiced so much. And what I'm getting is that like that can become something that you don't have to consciously do so much all of the time with all of the little stuff The someone hung up on when I called them, you know, kind of things that you're able to just move past that pretty quickly because it's like, I've been there, I've seen that, I've processed that before and that didn't feel good when I first started doing this, but I kind of get the game, you know, in terms of what's going on there. That is so cool. So like with our thoughts, you said that triggers like our emotional state. I sort of get that part. And then that drives the actions and the results. In terms of like this cycle that you're talking about, is there anything else that we should be consciously aware of that I missed or didn't ask about in terms of what we're feeding our head and our thoughts and then you know, how that affects like the execution, maybe of some of this stuff mm -hmm. uh, around BQ. Is there anything else that we can dig into there? The last part that's important about the cycle is that it's a cycle. Mm -hmm. So your performance feeds into your mental mindset yeah. and it starts all over again. And it can be a BQ is a virtuous cycle or a vicious cycle, but you get to choose what it is in your life. And it's continuous, it's fluid. So some days the levels are low mm -hmm. and other days the levels are off the charts and you're really excelling and exceeding. But that also aligns very specifically with a sales profession that we have a monthly or quarterly or annual quota and it's made up of individual sales. It's different for every salesperson. But when you break it down and you look at, so for example, I think in my last sales year, I had my son. So I only worked about nine months, but I sold, I think just under 700,000 in revenue. And my average revenue per sale was close to about 70 grand. So that was 10 deals or so that I sold. And when you break it down and you're looking at your performance, even if you're doing the BQ and you're really executing well and you've got strong IQ and EQ, sales is sales. Sometimes we lose deals that we should have won. And sometimes we win deals that we never should have won. 
So it's hard and there are uncontrollables that uh, we have to acknowledge are there. No salesperson has 100% close rate. So even when your IQ, EQ, and BQ are off the charts, you might still falter. And so that can be a tough pill to swallow. But there are ways that you can, not just in this execution, but to, and also in your how you're thinking about your sales career, is if I had to sell... 10 new clients to hit my goal for the year, then I need to make sure that I'm doing all the things to have at the rate of my close rate enough in the pipeline to where I'm not putting all my eggs in one basket with a prospect. And I see that to be one of the biggest mistakes that salespeople make is they don't have enough prospects in the pipeline. You should have so many qualified deals in your pipeline that even if you only closed a third, you would still be above your goal. So I think it's really important to know that that performance obviously is not just going to be based on having a great mental mindset and good emotional state. This BQ component about actually doing the work, you will find that you will have more virtuous cycles of BQ and virtuous sales performance if you're always ahead of the game. So somebody um, was looking to venture into sales and we just did it. He asked me to you know, pick my brain. <laughs> yeah. That happens all the time. I really like this guy. So I was like, yes, I don't usually uh, have time for those types of conversations, but I said yes to him. And he's coming from a marketing role and he wants to transition into sales. And we were talking about how most sales compensation plans have like a 50 or 60K base and then upside Mm -hmm. in commission. And we're out here in Denver. It's kind of expensive to live out here. And so he's like, I mean, maybe I could survive one month at that base. But what would I do if like he asked me, how did you make it on the months when you had to rely on that base salary? And I looked at him and I said, what months? I never had to rely on my base salary. I said, my base salary was 42,000. I pretended like I didn't even get it. Yeah. I pretended like I was commission only. I said, what I did is I planned out my year and I said, I will never rely on this $42,000 a year. I will only make a living off of commission. And I just chalked up that 42K to like pay for my car and my food, you know, or like whatever. Yeah. But I'm like, the rest of my life is out of this commission. And he, the look on his face was classic where he's like, it was a completely foreign concept to him that you would ever approach something and say, there is no plan B. If I'm saying yes to this profession, I'm saying yes to doing this, then I'm saying yes to doing all of the things that I need to do in order to succeed. And that means having 10 X of your pipeline of what you want to close in your pipeline, or depending on what your close rate is, it's getting to that level of execution so that you can have this virtuous cycle and not be in this, like, don't put yourself in the position where you have to have the tough conversations. Just do the work that you need to do to be great. Yeah. It's like another theme I pick up from talking to you, Mary, too, is like just demanding more of yourself. Like, dude, come on, like minimums, really? Come on. Like, you know, what would life be like if I doubled this, tripled it, you know, quadrupled it? It's really interesting. I want to shift gears a little bit. Same topic, but I'm curious, like, how do you suggest companies in you do some of this work on, well, you do a lot of this work. This is what you do. <laughs> How do you suggest, you know, from a management and leadership standpoint that people create a culture around this? Cause that's a big part, you know, that's missing is, so if a few individuals here and there get trained on this and that sort of stuff, if it's not being reinforced in the culture and it makes it really hard to actually take this approach, it usually doesn't last long in my experience with companies. There's nothing worse than coming in and training a company for a couple of months and they just don't retain anything, you know, after that. How can a company, and this is a huge question, but how can a company like sort of more ingrain this into their culture and make this a part of like their weekly coaching and training? Hopefully they're doing it on a weekly basis. (laughs) Right. Well, you have to audit. You have to do a gap analysis to understand the gap between the current state and the desired future state. And you have to do individual benchmarks on each person. I learned this. So I ended up getting my college degree and I did it online through University of Phoenix. Nothing better than being the number one sales rep, making a few hundred thousand dollars a year and sitting there at night writing a flipping essay. (laughs) I was like, this sucks. I have my Cheetos and my martini and I'm like, I hate life. (laughs) Like, why do I need a college degree? This is seriously so stupid. But anyway, sorry, I digress. I ended up getting that college degree. So organizational theory, organizational behavioral theory and management. I learned this in college. It was like my favorite class. And 
it's all about that no two people can be managed the same way. And if you have a very standardized approach to management, especially of salespeople, you will fail. Salespeople are some of the most unique, dynamic people I've ever met in my life. Quick side note, when I was selling for that Fortune 1000 payroll and HR company in my last year there, uh, last year and a half, two years maybe, they moved me into a new role. It was a brand new role. They took 10 or 11 of the top 25 reps in the mid-market division and they formed a new division called the upmarket. So they took, I think it was 11 of us, 11 of the most brilliant salespeople that had year over year, quota crushing performance, unbelievable track records and put us all on the same team. And created this new division. Wow. Let me tell you what. Not one of us did anything similar or like the next person. We all had carved out our very own unique way of selling that was aligned with our DNA. It was aligned with our personalities. It was aligned with our superhuman strengths. We knew how to bring in other team members or assets or or to make up for our weaknesses and where we weren't strong. We all had our own very unique way of doing the role and we had all proven it out and we were all so different. And I think our sales manager's head exploded every day because he had no idea what to do with us because he tried to like have a set standard process and he tried to bring in a new playbook. We're like, what? They brought in this new upmarket sales playbook. I'm like, you're taking the top performers in the whole company out of 3000 salespeople and you're all the same way. Well, that was definitely not a good idea. So one thing that I learned through this process is when you look at training salespeople, you have to meet them where they are Mm -hmm. and they need an individual learning and development plan that isn't just about sales skills. It's not about having the next talk track. It's not about what email should I send next. It's not how to handle objections. It's the whole kit and caboodle of what makes a high-performing salesperson. You need to be looking at inner work, mental mindset. You need to be looking at their environment. You need to look at their intrinsically motivated, extrinsically motivated, or altruistic. You need to identify what their love languages are. If they feel valued through words of affirmation or more quality time. I mean, if you have, this stuff is all real. This is the psychology of a salesperson. You want to develop the best sales team. You have to meet these people where they are. You have to find out what makes them tick. You have to learn their language. And then from a manager's perspective, you have to meet them where they are and you have to walk on the journey with them to excellence. And any sales program that is like a series, you know, a set curriculum, well, we've got uh, the next 10 weeks, we're going to be learning these 10 items. On any given meeting, you're going to have 60 to 70% of your reps completely checking out because they're going to think this isn't for me. I already know how to do this. I don't need to learn this. They won't have the emotional buy-in. And without the emotional buy-in, then they're not going to do the work. It goes back to the BQ wheel. Something entered their mind. Great. We have to do sales training. Emotional trigger. I don't need this. I don't want to do this. It wasn't built for me. I don't like this program. It's off the shelf. It's canned. I don't like the sales trainer. They don't know anything about what I do. They have negative self-talk, the emotional state. Then they just don't do the work. They're checked out. They're like, whatever. Check the box sales training. We're going to have to do it. And then nothing changes in the results. But in the same team, you might have some people that have the interpretation of the data different. I love this. This is amazing. This is great. Wow. This is exactly what I needed. They show up, they do the work, they're bought in good emotional, their performance changes. So you have to do an audit. You have to do a gap analysis. You need individual benchmarks. Then you need to identify an individual learning and development plan. Can you do group training? Yes, but you need to have a personal commitment and buy-in from every single team member that they are on board and they understand the why behind it. And they need to have tangible benefits to going through the program. They need to understand specifically why they should allocate time to doing that and what the outcome's gonna be. So if it's an extrinsically motivated person, put it in terms of commission and how much more money they're gonna earn and the car they're gonna buy or the vacation they wanna take their family on. If they're intrinsically motivated, get them ramped up about this is your year that you might be able to be that number one rep. We might be able to get you walking the stage. You may get the crystal. You may get that last whatever. 
if they're altruistic, they may not be the best to be in sales because those people are, they struggle with performance because they're more about serving people. So potentially just move them to account management or customer success, but if they're altruistic. They care about serving others. And so finding a way of perspective, even if you have a top performer that has some altruism in them, let them take a leadership role, let them spearhead some of the trainings, let them feel important. But if you meet people where they are and actually speak their language and you take it upon yourself to treat them differently through the process, that's when you get results in sales performance. But you can't go about it in a mediocre fashion and expect something great. You want something great, you have to do something great. Uh, you're completely making me rethink about how we train folks because there's so a couple things come to mind. First off, I love that you mentioned five love languages. When I read that book prior to meeting my wife, Sarah, this is like 2015, totally helped me figure out like gaps that I had in previous relationships. And when I looked at that, I was like, oh, this helps me understand my relationship with my dad better because his biggest thing is quality time. Mm -hmm. And I would always get him gifts for Christmas birthday. And he never really seemed that into it. And it almost kind of hurt me a little bit. But I remember one time we organized a trip where all of us siblings, except for my sister, who was living at home still in high school, we surprised him on Father's Day and showed up in person to hang out with him for the weekend, right with him and my mom. And he almost cried, you know, because it was so special to him. That was so much more to him than any oh. gift, right? So I think the five, that's such an actionable thing that you could do with your team is like, what means, like, how do they show love and, and how do they like receiving, you know, love from people? Like, that's a really actionable thing. I love that. And then the other thing that you mentioned, it makes me rethink how we train and coach is it's really easy as a trainer to come into an organization and say, you know what? only 10% of you are actually going to apply the stuff that we talk about. And those are the people that are going to do well, yada, yada, yada. And it's a completely wrong way of looking at it from my standpoint coming in, because is it that those 90% of other people don't give a shit? I, I don't think that's it. It's like, they don't maybe give a shit because they are not bought in to you as a person, what you're talking about, why it's going to benefit them. That's really interesting. Like one thing actually actionable for me from this conversation is to, like actually dig way more into the companies that we work with and asking people just really simple question, dude, what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning to like do this job? Like what makes you feel really good about the work that you're doing? What makes you feel bad about like just knowing some of those things, like you said, it's like, is this a commission thing that I talk about to get this person bought in? Or is it more of you're going to get to serve more people, which I know you love helping people, mm -hmm. you know, kind of angle. So dude, this conversation flew by. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so fun. Hey, maybe there's a part two one day. Who knows? Yeah. Dude, thank you so much for coming on, Mary. There's so much like good stuff here. Where can people go to connect with you, like learn more about you, what you're doing? What's the best way for people to do that? Yeah. Well, LinkedIn and Instagram are my jams. Okay. So I'm on Twitter too, but go to LinkedIn and just find me Mary Grothy, G-R-O-T-H-E. And then on my Instagram, it's Mary Grothy as well. But you want to see more about my personal life and how I tackle being a CEO, a wife and a mom and my faith and everything intertwined. Instagram is a great place for you. Otherwise you want to, you want to stick more professional, just find me on LinkedIn and we'll go from there. All right. That was a fun interview. One of my big takeaways from that is like really thinking about habits and really thinking about how do you create change in behavior because your everyday behavior and habits, that's really the things that are going to dictate your prospecting success, especially. And one of the big things that I am going to personally focus on more in the training and coaching that I do is really working on those habits. And I've mentioned it a couple times in this episode already, but one of the tools that I found very effective in doing it is Wingman. And it helps me scale my coaching beyond a one-to-one -one sort of interaction where I can do really good group coaching by pulling out samples of calls and pointing it out to the teams that I work with. So if you're a sales manager or a sales leader, this is a really good way to scale your time beyond doing one-on-ones. And as a rep, it's a really good way to coach yourself through some of these habits too. So Make sure to check that out at blissfulprospecting.com slash wingman. And thanks for tuning in today. We'll talk to you soon.